Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse one, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, unto the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As always, Paul starts this epistle with his name, and Paul's a very humble man, and I've said this repeatedly over the last few unscripted Bible studies that I've become accustomed to doing, that he's quite happy to list somebody like Silvanus and Timothy next to his name. He's writing to the church singular in Thessalonica, and please allow me to say this, that you can imagine, say 55, 60 AD, when he wrote this epistle, that there were many house churches in Thessalonica, and yet he's writing to the church singular, not churches plural. The moment you are born again, you are baptized into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians chapter 4. If you've trusted in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are saved. And according to Ephesians 4, you are kept saved. Let me also say this, if I may. Because we live under the new covenant, a new dispensation, the Lord has been very graceful in allowing people that are saved to worship him in different ways. Hence why we have so many different denominations. Providing those people have trusted in the finished work of the Lord Jesus, they are saved. What you don't find in the New Testament are clone churches. We are not all the same. David wrote parts of the Old Testament using his style. Moses wrote parts of the Old Testament using his style. Paul writes parts of the New Testament using his style, whereas Peter, James and John write their parts of the New Testament using their own style. We are not all clones. We are very different. So although there are many denominations around the world, that isn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it reflects the diversity of the body of Christ. And like I say, and I'll say it one more time, providing those people have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and are resting in his finished work, they are saved. These churches may meet on different days of the week. They may worship the Lord in different ways. They may have secondary and third issues, which we won't necessarily agree with them on, but provided they have trusted in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, they are saved. So yes, according to verse 1, this epistle is written to the church, singular, in Thessalonica. But like I've already said, there were many house churches all over uh, Thessalonica, and this epistle would have been passed to each and every one of them. He also says that the church of the Thessalonians is in God the Father. I've said this also over the last few videos, that the moment you are born again, you are put in to God the Father, you are put in to God the Son, and you are put in to God the Holy Spirit. The triune God lives within you. So eternal security is completely biblical, and once saved, always saved, should be upheld, proclaimed, and defended. Also I want to say from verse 2, the word grace and peace are synonymous, but peace is a very interesting word because it really means that God has been honoured through the death of the Lord Jesus. God has been placated by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and sin has been abolished 
through the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have access to heaven via the Lord Jesus Christ. And that word peace should be underlined in all of your Bibles because Bible-believing Christianity is the only faith anywhere in the world which guarantees a sinner eternal life the moment they have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And they have perfect peace when they meditate on the Word of God and they can come to the triune God whenever they wish to. But above all, they have been saved and therefore they have peace with God. Total exoneration, a complete pardon from all of your past, present and future sins and a ticket which has been purchased via the Lord Jesus Christ's bloody death which is awaiting you. In other words, when you die, you go straight to heaven because Christ has paid the price for you. He has purchased your ticket. It's like when you go on holiday, you arrive at the airport and without a ticket, you won't go anywhere. But the moment a ticket has been purchased for you, you are entitled, you are allowed, you will now be able to board the plane and fly from A to B. And he has purchased that ticket for you. He is the captain of our salvation. 3. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God, for your patience and faith, in all your persecutions and tribulations, that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven, with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Okay, well from verses 3 down to 10, there wasn't one full stop or even a comma. So I let it run, and I wanted to read those verses all in one batch. And also keep in mind that if you had the original so-called Greek manuscripts for the New Testament, those manuscripts didn't contain any punctuation. All the words were in uppercase and therefore it read pretty much like a block of text. But uh, here, like I say, I wanted to read from 3 down to 10 and then return to some of these verses. Verse 5, he says that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Please always keep in mind that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are the same thing. And yet there are two aspects to the kingdom of God. First of all, when you are saved, you are baptized into the body of Christ and you are spiritually with the Lord in heaven. Your spirit has been regenerated and is reigning with the Lord in heaven. But you are still physically here 
alive on the earth. So you are spiritually in the kingdom of God and yet still physically on the earth. When you die, your body and soul will be joined to your spirit, which is already in heaven, and you therefore reign with him physically. It starts off for 1,000 years after the rapture, and off you go into eternity. So the kingdom of God, as I say, is the same as the kingdom of heaven, but it has two aspects, a physical side and a spiritual side. Here Paul says that you need to be counted worthy to suffer. You have to be counted worthy to, in some ways, receive the kingdom of God. And the only way you can be worthy, really, is to come to the foot of the cross and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And you simply reach out to him as a beggar would do, and he reaches back and grabs you and saves you and secures you. You are now safe, and uh, when you die, you go to heaven, not hell. But here, Paul is also going to be referring to the kingdom of God in the sense that it is conditional, because to rule and reign with the Lord for a thousand years is conditional. Now, your salvation isn't conditional. As I've said repeatedly, you are saved by reaching out to the Saviour and saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, and he saves you. Anybody can come to the cross to be saved, and all those that come, he saves to the uttermost. But to rule and reign with him for a thousand years, to be able to see him physically on the earth for a thousand years, is conditional. You can lose your millennial inheritance. If you are saved and living after the flesh, and you don't repent there's a very good chance that you will not be reigning with him for a thousand years. You're still saved, but you're not going to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. Hence why the Apostle Peter says to be holy, for he is holy. You need to protect your testimonies, because the moment you lose your testimony, it's very hard to get it back. Also four, going into six, he speaks about persecutions and tribulations, being a Christian is not easy. Yes, it's easy to be saved, but living a crucified life, picking up your cross every day, standing for the Lord Jesus Christ, denying your flesh, is not easy. It's very difficult. And he says here from verse 6, Seeing it is a righteous thing, a good thing, with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. The Lord's going to turn the tables so if you are a saved man or woman and you are trying to take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ and you have people that are coming against you, whether directly or indirectly, whether it's from your family or outside of your family, it could be in your workplace, it could be in your school environment, it could be absolutely anywhere coming from absolutely anyone. If these people are intentionally coming against you, and causing you problems, then God is going to deal with those people. The worst thing for an unsaved man or woman is to get tangled up with a saved party. The worst thing for an unsaved man or woman is to interfere with a ministry which is God-centered and Christ-honoring. There are a lot of people around that don't like the Word of God, that detest Bible-believing Christians. And I'll tell you this, as we get nearer to the rapture, the return of the Lord Jesus, you're going to see a lot more hostility aimed at Bible-believing Christians. More laws will be introduced around the world simultaneously by every possible government, every tribe and nation, all those that are in authority. And these laws are going to make it very difficult 
for those of us which are saved. But always keep in mind that he that has the Son has life. We are saved and we are kept saved. And with the Lord on our side, it doesn't really matter what anyone else says or does. But here Paul is looking really into the tribulation. Because most of what you are hearing in Second Thessalonians, and hopefully you are reading along with me, is eschatological. It is still to occur. Hence why it's important to get the dispensations in the right place. 7 he says to you who are troubled rest with us to those that are disturbed to those that are filled with anxiety rest with us Christ is our Sabbath rest Hebrews chapter 4 when you read the word of God you should have perfect peace people should know that they are saved and kept saved and that nothing can come against you unless the Lord allows that to occur he also says that Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels he was taken up into heaven with angels and he comes back first of all at the rapture with angels according to first thessalonians chapter 4 but also paul is looking here at the return of the lord jesus christ to the earth not just the rapture and i would just say this as a quick footnote and a plug if i may please if you get a chance listen to my verse by verse teaching on first thessalonians because uh, sometimes we get asked questions which take time to respond to and if people would just listen to a previous bible study that i've already done on this occasion first thessalonians it would save me time and it would also be beneficial to you the listener because you've got first thessalonians which has already been recorded and you've got second thessalonians which is obviously being produced here and now but my point simply being you've got all of the bits that you need you see the bible is like a jigsaw and all the bits have to be put in the right place at the right time otherwise it doesn't make any sense but here he's saying that to you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Not in reference to the rapture people but in reference to the second coming. And he goes on to say in verse 8. In flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word obey is key to understanding what Paul is saying. It's one thing to not know much about the Bible. It's one thing to be ignorant of the Lord Jesus. But here he's speaking about people that have heard the gospel, have rejected the gospel and won't obey the gospel. These are people that have willfully rejected him and have hardened their hearts. And he's coming back to punish them. This also feeds back into verse 6 where Paul speaks about God punishing those that are causing his people to be anxious, to be unsure of anything, to have lost their perfect peace. Like I say, if you mess with a saved man or woman, the Lord is going to mess with you. And ultimately, according to verse 9, if you're not careful, he's going to punish you with everlasting destruction. Not annihilation. You can destroy somebody and yet that person still exists. This is in reference to the second death. At the second death, an unsaved man or woman turns into like a worm, according to Mark chapter 9. And a worm is blind, a worm cannot speak. And therefore that worm-shaped soul goes into eternity. So when you find scriptures which speak about being cast into the lake of fire and also being cast into outer darkness, you simply put these three points together and you see quite easily that a soul at the second death is blind like a worm burning in the lake of fire. Hence why the unsaved party is considered to be in outer darkness. This is one of the most terrifying aspects of the word of God. The lake of fire, eternal hell fire, eternal torture. 
The word destruction can also be translated torture. And yet you won't find this preached or taught by the vast majority of churches in the 21st century. But Paul tells it like it is. 10. Paul says when he, Jesus, shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe. Because our testimony among you was believed in that day. It's like an ambassador going overseas and trying to drum up support for his or her head of state. And the announcement has gone out that the head of state of their country is going to be arriving soon. And preparations are made for the head of state's arrival. And people don't want to know that. People aren't interested. And people try to thwart the head of state's arrival. But arrive, the head of state does, and when they arrive, they are glorified. Those that have done the groundwork, those that have done the spade work, those that have put themselves out day and night, preparing for the head of state's arrival, are going to be pleased, they're going to be rewarded, and they are going to be admired. Because they preached that this day was coming, like Noah preached it, like Lot preached it, like we are preaching it in the 21st century. And one day he is going to come. And when he comes back, everybody that is saved is going to be rejoicing. 11. Wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness, and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's that expression again, that you would be counted worthy of this calling. This is once again going back to the understanding of service, not salvation. And Paul once again is speaking about somebody's reward. We're not worthy to go to heaven. We can't go to heaven on our own good works. We can't go to heaven because we no longer do this or that or we have given this up, or we have given that up, or we are now tithing to a charity, or a church group, or a ministry. We are saved by our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. But, one more time, to rule and reign with him for a thousand years is conditional. And this is why Paul is driving this point home one more time, that you would be counted worthy of this calling, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. Like a soldier in the army, like a police officer, like a firefighter. All these people have to be physically healthy and emotionally healthy to be good at what they do, to be used by their superiors, to be able to reach out to those that need their help. The same is true of the soldiers of the Lord. If we are not spiritually healthy, if we are not emotionally healthy, we can't do a great thing for the Lord. If we are backslidden, if we are living in the flesh, if we aren't in the word of God, if we are living like the world, what good can we do for him? How can we shame those that don't believe the gospel? How can we glorify him? We can't do anything for him. We cause more harm than good. And we become our own worst enemies. And by verse 12, he concludes his overall theme, really, from uh, the first chapter, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified. Not the name of the Father, not the name of the Holy Spirit, but the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bend. At the name of Jesus, every tongue should confess. 
we are saved by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus. In the Old Testament, messengers went out in the name of the king. They had the authority of the king. Here Christ has the authority from heaven. All power and authority, according to Matthew 28, has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has the authority. So when you get to Acts of the Apostles, where it says that you should be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, it simply means with the authority of Christ Jesus, you can now be baptized. And if you go back to Matthew 28, you find you should be baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. But really, my main thoughts from the first chapter is Christ is elevated to deity. He has always been God. Not God the Father, not God the Holy Spirit, but God the Son. Also, Paul starts out by highlighting the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ from really verses 6, 7, 8 and 9. And if you go to Matthew 24, you get the cross-reference to what's going to happen when he comes back at the end of the tribulation. Also, Revelation 19 tells us about the armies which leave heaven with him as he prepares to come back and rule and reign. Those that reject the gospel, those that don't believe the gospel, according to verse 8, are enemies of the Lord and he's going to take vengeance on them with fire. The first time he punished the world, he used water. The second time he's going to use fire. But he ends the first chapter in verse 12 with the term grace. You found it at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace, my two key words really, from the first chapter. And he concludes chapter 1, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace simply means a gift, something which we cannot receive, something which we don't deserve. Through the goodness, kindness and mercy of God, he has made it possible for mankind to be saved and reconciled unto himself. But at the same time, he has also allowed mankind to have a free will. So those that come to the Lord are going to be saved, and those that don't come to the Lord are going to be lost. So you either trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and off into heaven you go, or you don't trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you arrive at the great white throne, and according to the Gospel of John, chapter 5, I believe it is, you can tell the Lord what a great person you were, and you can tell him how sinless you were, and of course you know within five seconds that you're going to be consigned to everlasting hell. You have to be perfect, you have to be sinless in order to enter into heaven. And also you would have had to fulfill all of the Old Testament rituals, you would have had to have kept the law perfect to a fine T. And therefore, if you have any common sense, you know that you can't save yourself. That's why you need a saviour. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Not the rapture. The day of Christ, the day of the Lord, means his return to judge the earth with flaming fire. And there are people today, believe it or not, that think that we are in the tribulation. And he starts the second chapter by begging the brethren, we, Paul, Silvanus and Timotheus, beseech you by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, second coming, and by our gathering together unto him, rapture, 
that ye, all of you, don't be soon shaken. And he says, whether it's by spirit or by word or by letter, meaning an epistle. This is why it is imperative to hold to sola scriptura. Second Timothy chapter 3 told us that the man of God is perfect, fully equipped. Why? Because he has the word of God. He has the sword of the Lord. He has what he needs. So when somebody comes to you and says, I am an apostle, or I am a prophet, or I had a vision, or the Lord spoke to me, or I saw this, or I saw that, forget it. Galatians 1, 6-9, Paul says that if an angel comes to you with another gospel, let him be accursed. If it's not found in scripture, throw it out. It doesn't matter if you come across a nice person who has a nice smile, who has charm, who has great charisma. If he's not preaching the word of God to you, if what he's teaching isn't substantiated in scripture, it's not from heaven. It could be from hell, but more likely or not, it's coming from within him. Human intellect. And it's worthless. Totally worthless. Look at verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come, except... Look at verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. When Paul wrote this epistle, the Jewish temple was still very much in existence. It wasn't destroyed until 70 AD. When you find the temple in the word of God, it always refers to a literal building. However, there is one exception to this. In 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks about the Christian being the temple of God. The Christian's body is the temple. Because he starts out this epistle by telling the Thessalonicans that they are in God the Father. So a saved man or woman, then and today, has the triune God living within them. And therefore, spiritually, their body is the temple of God. But here he is speaking about a literal temple. From verse 3 he says, Let no man deceive you by any means. Whatever it takes, guard your minds, don't be deceived. For that day, the day of judgment, won't come until a falling away occurs. And then that man of sin will be revealed, the son of perdition, the Antichrist. He hasn't yet arrived. Now I know that every pope is a type of antichrist and every charismatic and word of faith preacher is a type of the son of perdition and uh, every false teacher is a type of the man of sin but here he is looking at a literal person that is going to come and enter the temple verse 4 showing that he is God we don't have a literal temple on the earth today we have mosques we have churches, we have steakhouses, we have kingdom halls, 
and we have synagogues, but we don't have a literal temple yet. But in Israel, we know that they have blueprints ready for the construction of the third temple. It's not yet convenient for the Jewish people to build their temple, quite possibly where the Dome of the Rock is, because the Jewish government won't allow them to build it. And they won't allow them to build it because there is pressure from America and the so-called Peace Quartet. But uh, in God's time, he will allow the temple to go up. He will allow the son of perdition to enter this temple and proclaim himself to be God. Why? Because God is going to judge the world. This is what mankind has always wanted. Mankind has always wanted the son of perdition, the man of sin, to come and rule. They don't want the Christ, they want the Antichrist. Look at verse 5. Remember ye not, that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let, until he be taken out of the way. The Holy Spirit at this present time is restraining this greater mystery of iniquity and yet it's already at work here in verse 7 the mystery of iniquity something which was hidden is now being displayed from the arrival of the lord to his return the mystery of iniquity continues this increased lawlessness this wickedness this evilness has always been around it goes back to the fall. It goes back to the devil deceiving Eve. And the Lord says to Adam, Wherefore art thou? And Adam blames Eve. And Eve blames the devil. No one takes responsibility. This mystery, something which has not been revealed until here and now, was already at work. And he says, Only he who now letteth will let. The Holy Spirit will, when it suits him, when the time is right, he will take him out of the way. He will reveal the son of perdition, the man of sin, to the world. Because they don't want the Christ, Jesus of course, they want the Antichrist. And he's going to go into the temple, in verse 4, and proclaim that he is God. And they're going to love it. The whole world is going to see this son of perdition, this man of sin, and they're going to love him. And the Muslims will think he's the twelfth Iman, the Masons will think he is the great architect of the universe, and the Jews will think he is the Messiah. But here he is called the son of perdition, the man of sin. 8. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. It goes back to the first chapter, verse 8, in flaming fire. Why? Because they don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These people reject the love of the truth because they don't want to be saved. They don't want the love of the truth. What is the truth? Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
They don't want to be saved through their own free will. They reject the gospel. This wicked one, back in verse 8, again, it's the Antichrist. Verse 9, Paul says that the Antichrist comes after the working of Satan. Satan is behind the Antichrist. Satan enters the Antichrist. Satan anoints the Antichrist. And he's going to be working with all power and signs and lying wonders. He will perform miracles like no one has ever seen. He is a classic counterfeit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And many people are going to fall for him. Look at verse 11. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Why? Because they won't believe the truth. They won't listen to the gospel because they have persecuted those that are saved. But above all, because they are enemies of God. God is going to send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Never mind the devil. Listen, if you're not saved, you are an enemy of God. And he is going to send you strong delusion. Go to Ezekiel, please. Chapter 14. And look at verse 9. And if the prophet be deceived when he hath spoken a thing, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand upon him, and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. God did it in the Old Testament, and God is going to do it in the Great Tribulation. Go back to Second Thessalonians, please. Look at verse 12 from chapter 2. That they all might be damned, who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. These people loved their sin. These people were rolling around in the dirt, worshipping themselves and living after the flesh. When Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments, the children of Israel were partying. They were living after the flesh. And he came back and he said, those that are with me stand here and those that are not with me stand over there. And thousands fell because they lived after the flesh. They had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is a perpetual hardness. This is an ongoing system of unbelief. Caiaphas and most of the Sanhedrin, most of the Jewish leaders, continued to reject him. They continued to disbelieve him. And they continued to harden their hearts against him. Hence they commit the unpardonable sin. We don't live in a world today where we can commit the unpardonable sin. Because we don't have the Lord Jesus Christ living on the earth in our presence. But here Paul is looking into the tribulation at a specific group of people. And he says here quite clearly one more time that they all might be damned. Everlasting hell, lake of fire, second death, because they had pleasure in unrighteousness. You can temporarily fall out of fellowship with the Lord. You can stray from him. But uh, like I say, he's looking at people here from the standpoint of having a perpetual hardness and pretty much are guilty of high treason. They should know better, but uh, they reject God because man loves darkness rather than light. 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, 
brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This period that he's just been speaking about, pretty much from verses 3 down to 12, isn't something which has any application to us. He says here one more time in verse 13, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. Meaning those that were alive in Paul's generation, that lived in Thessalonica, that believed the gospel, were saved from the beginning beginning of the church age they got called they responded they were chosen they got saved so therefore when you take these verses together as i say from 3 down to 12 he is looking at the tribulation he is looking at those that are going to reject the truth and these people are going to be deceived these people are going to fall and they're going to fall hard but he's not speaking about those living here in 56 ad and he's not speaking about those of us living today pre the tribulation but he's speaking about those that will be alive during the tribulation. Starts with the tribulation saints, although they are not going to be deceived. They are not going to fall for the Antichrist. They won't take the mark of the beast. But many people, many people are going to fall. And they're going to fall because their hearts weren't right. And God is going to harden their hearts and they are going to be destroyed. 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Pre the writing of the New Testament, the apostles would crisscross the Roman Empire, preaching to the masses, people got saved, churches were created, uh, elders were appointed, and they preached. And they would have had traditions, and for the most part, I believe those traditions were to abstain from any kind of Jewish ritual, and to remember that Christ has paid for your sins in full. One of the greatest problems that the early church experienced was this pull from the Jews. This pull to go back to the law. This pull to continue to celebrate the Jewish feast days, which now are obsolete and totally worthless, totally unnecessary for the saved man or woman. But with the New Testament written and widely circulated by 90 AD, anyone who wanted to could check in the scriptures to know what was true and what was not true. 16. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and God, even our Father, which hath loved us, and hath given us everlasting consolation, and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts, and establish you in every good word and work. Our Lord Jesus Christ, listed before God the Father. Once again, the deity of Christ is being elevated here, and Paul thinks nothing of putting the name of Christ pre-God the Father. And here he says to comfort your hearts. But go back to First Thessalonians chapter 4, 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, rapture, not second coming. 17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds space to meet the lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the lord but look at 18 wherefore comfort one another with these words beautiful stop worrying comfort one another with these words back to second thessalonians 
please. Sometimes a comma, sometimes a semicolon, sometimes a colon separates the rapture from the second coming. Here, you found clearly from the second chapter, the second coming, but also the rapture. He starts this chapter. We beg you, brothers and sisters, that you be not soon shaken. Stop worrying, as if the day of Christ is at hand, like it's going to happen now. It's not going to happen. These things can't happen until the man of sin, the son of perdition, has been revealed. He hasn't been revealed yet. He wasn't revealed when Paul wrote this. He hasn't been revealed yet, 2,000 years later. He's going to go into the temple. The temple hasn't been built yet. The temple was around when Paul wrote this, and yet nobody went into the temple and declared himself to be God. This is still to occur. Yes, the mystery of iniquity from verse 7 is already at work. It's been at work since, as I say, the Lord's arrival, and it will continue to be at work until his return. But the Holy Spirit hasn't yet lifted the restrainer. He hasn't yet pulled the wall down. He hasn't yet allowed the Antichrist to come onto the world scene. He will, but it hasn't happened yet. When the Antichrist arrives and he's done his damage, the Lord himself is going to destroy him. Not the church, but the Lord. The Antichrist is powered by Satan, the devil himself. And he has signs and wonders like you could not believe. And those that don't receive the love of the truth, they're going to be sent a lie. A lie, I believe, found in verse 4, that the Antichrist is the Messiah. They are going to believe that lie. They are going to see the Antichrist in the Jewish temple, in the tribulation, with the world's press and media beaming these pictures around the world, and they're going to say, here is the man. Ece homo is the Greek words that you find in the New Testament when Pilate says, behold the man. Ece homo. Again, it's a ridicule. It's an utterance of disgust. Here the Lord was blasphemed by Pilate. Pilate offers him to the Jewish people, says, here is your king. And they say to him, we don't want this man to rule over us. We have only one king, which is Caesar. In the tribulation, this man is going to stand up in the temple and say, I am God. And they're going to say, we love him. We will receive him. We will believe on him. And they do that because the hearts were hardened. And because God, from verse 11, has sent them strong delusion. If you're not saved, you need to be saved. You cannot take the chance of being saved post the rapture. There are awful times which are coming, and I believe those times are going to be upon us very soon. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may have free course, and be glorified, even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. Intercession is something which we all need. We pray for one another. We don't seek the prayers of Saint Christopher or Saint Jude or Mother Teresa or John Paul II. We pray for one another and we pray for one another to the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wasn't immune from persecution. If you're saved you won't be exempt from persecution, from wickedness and unreasonable people. The moment you have been saved persecution awaits you. 3. But the Lord is faithful who shall establish you and keep you from evil. Yes, he will do when you walk in the Spirit, when you meditate on the Word of God, when you do his will. He won't do anything for you if you are living after the flesh. 
that old expression where it says that the Lord helps those who help themselves is completely true. But you have to help yourself. You have to preserve yourself. You have to present yourself as a faithful, consecrated vessel fit for the Master's use. Verse 4, And we have confidence in the Lord touching you, that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ, the rapture. We wait patiently for the Lord. We wait for his return. We were told that it could come in a twinkling of an eye. As I've said in previous videos, special forces are always on standby to be sent anywhere in the world at a moment's notice. So they keep themselves physically healthy, they keep themselves emotionally healthy, and above all, they keep their weapons ready. Our weapon, of course, is the Word of God. And this book won't help us. This book doesn't benefit us until we read it, believe it, and practice it. This book is called The Sword of the Lord for a reason, because it can cut through red tape, it can cut through heresy, it can cut through anything and anyone which is not of God. 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. How would you know what this tradition is, by the way? Let's say you are living in France, or Spain, or Portugal, or England, or Germany in the 12th century. How would you know what the tradition is? You see, the problem for many years was the Catholic Church only used Latin. And most people in Catholic Europe and Catholic England didn't speak Latin. In fact, most people couldn't speak at all. They couldn't read or write. And therefore, they were very much hoping and trusting in their priests in the pulpit to present the truth to them, to be honest. And here he says, We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would draw yourselves from every brother, that walketh disorderly. They wouldn't know what this would be in reference to. What is this brother doing that he did not receive from them? In verse 15, Brothers, stand fast. Hold the traditions which ye have been taught. What are these traditions? All they have is what they've been told from the priest in the pulpit. But here, he's saying be careful because there's false tradition. How do you know fact from fiction? How do you know the truth from error? The word of God, of course. But again, people have to read it, they have to study it, they have to apply it. This is why Paul says to study, to show yourself approved unto God. Pre the Bible, pre God putting his word into the language of the world, no one had a clue. All they knew was what the priests taught them. And even to this day, one and a half billion Catholics, all they know is what their priests tell them. They don't check the scriptures for themselves, they're not interested. But here, Paul says... We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves. That's a commandment. That's an imperative commandment. 7. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us. For we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labour and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. Paul says that they did not want to become burdensome to the early church. So they worked alongside these people. 
Paul, as an apostle, as an evangelist, had the right to be supported by the early church. He was a full-time evangelist, and therefore the early church could have been expected to support him. But here he says, we wanted to make ourselves examples to you. So he works alongside them. This is very important, and I will explain why in a moment. 10. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. He doesn't say here that if you can't work, you shouldn't eat. He says, if you will not work, you should not eat. 11. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Let me just stop there. If you can't work because you are ill or you have been made redundant or you have been unable to get back into work, that's one thing. And the word of the Lord, I believe, is not against you. If you can work and you won't work, then the word of the Lord is against you. This term busybodies doesn't need any explanation. There are a lot of saved people all over the world that spend far too much time on YouTube and Facebook and other social media sites, watching videos, posting threads, debating with one another. This is unacceptable behavior. If you can work and you won't work, you are in error. But if you can't work and want to work, or if you are unable to return into work, I don't think you are out of the will of the Lord. But here Paul makes it very clear that he could have been supported by the early church and he chose to work with his own hands. He worked alongside the early church. And the reason why I'm saying all of this really is because I've listened to preachers over the years, for the most part career clergy, Protestant priests, paid pastors who haven't got a clue. And these people have never had jobs and they are preaching many times condemnation against brothers and sisters in the Lord who want to work but can't work. Some are unable to work. Some cannot get work for whatever reason. And they are condemning good people. And I've been on both sides of the fence. I've been employed and I've been unemployed. So I know how this thing works. I live in the real world, whereas most of these people don't live in the real world. But Paul lived in the real world. And he worked alongside the early church. As an evangelist, he could have been supported by the early church, but he chose to work. What you do not find in the scriptures, and please listen to me, what you do not find in the word of God, what you never find in the New Testament, is the one man paid pastor. Every New Testament assembly was run by elders, and they were expected to be given double honour, respect, an evangelist is entitled, if he's sent out by his church, to be supported. A ministry, if you wish to support with gifts or donations or whatever, has that right too, if you want to. It's not compulsory. Tithing is not mandatory. It's uh, something which you can decide to do if you wish to. It's optional. But here, he's condemning lazy, disobedient, busybodies who are not working at all and are going around causing a nuisance and wasting time and I see it and I'm sure you've seen it too and here he says to separate yourself from those people 13 but ye brethren 
be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Separation. This would also be in reference to women as well, of course. But here Paul says, separate from them. Don't hang around with these people. These people that are walking around being mischief makers, being disorderly, lazy. Look at 15. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Don't treat him with uh, contempt. Don't be rude to him or her. Don't treat him like an unsaved man or woman, but uh, admonish him, rebuke him. Be uh, polite, be courteous to him or her, but allow them time to repent. Put them out. Cause them to be ashamed. 16. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always, by all means. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Grace, peace, joy, comfort, all key words that I've highlighted throughout this epistle. And even at this stage in Paul's life, even with his poor eyesight, he still manages to write this epistle. Just three chapters, and yet you've seen so much in here. You've seen the second coming, you've seen the rapture, you've seen the admonishment to work with your own hands, the need to separate from disorderly, rebellious, busybodies, and you've also seen what the Lord is going to do to those that are enemies of his people. Three chapters, no notes, as always a simple presentation of the Word of God, read from the King James Bible, and hopefully you read along with me, made some notes perhaps, but above all, hopefully by the second chapter, you were able to see the distinction between the day of the Lord and the rapture. And he says here one more time from chapter 2, 17, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Don't worry, don't fret, don't be anxious. And he concludes it from verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.